Hello, Chris Evans here. Thank you for downloading this special podcast from Virgin Radio featuring a fascinating guest, Dapper Dave. It's over to you. From the shipyards of Glasgow to the glitz and glamour of Hollywood, he's seen it all. Regularly voted as one of the greatest stand-ups of all time, his new book, Tall Tales and Wee Stories, is out today. Let's face it, you're always going to win when it comes to the big yin. Please welcome the one and only Billy Connolly. That was lovely. That's what I'm used to every day. (laughs) <laughs> when you come downstairs. Um, right, so Billy Connolly, the stand-up. Is it true that it happened all by accident, a fortuitous, universal lining up of the stars? One night you forgot the lyrics to a song, and so you started to explain to the audience what the song was about, you started to get some laughs, and you thought, aye, aye, there's something in this. Is that about yes, right? Yes, that was absolutely right. Where was it? When it was, was it? in Paisley in Scotland in a folk club. I was singing a song called St Brendan's Isle, and I was playing my banjo and I came to the middle of the song and I'd forgotten the lyrics. So I started to explain the song. I said, I've forgotten the words, but it's about this. And people started to laugh and then they laughed more and more. And I thought, this is good. And after that, I I had kind of decided that comedy was the way. It was as easy as that. And was there a point at which, a specific point at which the story superseded the songs? It was gradual. I still sang the songs and played the tunes, and but I talked a great deal between them. Because a lot of the banjo stuff is kind of weird. It's American ballads of people murdering their girlfriends, and you have to make sense of it. So I made nonsense of it. And it worked perfectly. When did when did you f- touch your first ever banjo? Where did the banjo come from? I, I there was a folk program on Scotland Scottish television called Alex a while, and they had Pete Seeger as a guest, and I'd never seen anybody playing the banjo. I'd never seen anybody picking it, and he did it, and I thought, oh God, I'd love to do that. And I went and bought myself one at the marketplace in Glasgow, the Barras. It was two pound fifty. And I went to the information centre in George Square where people usually ask where to get the bus for Oban. And I said, where can I get learn banjo? And the woman told me and I went up and there was banjo lessons. And I joined in and it all rolled on from there. Did it come to you easily, the banjo? Yeah. It was, I'm not a very good player, but I'm mad keen. Is the banjo particularly amateur friendly, would you say? Yeah. It's, especially in those days, it was rare. And so people sort of thought you were a bit exotic, <laughs> which was exactly what I was looking for. So, and of course, it's like golf, isn't it? Unless you're playing a shot, if you're just leaning on your golf club, nobody knows how good or bad you are. If you're just carrying a banjo around, you might be the, be- you might be the best banjo player you in the world. You might well be. <laughs> it's lovely. I also played the auto harp, which is a kind of zither instrument, which made me even more exotic and had long hair and a beard and weird clothes. And I had achieved everything I wanted to. I was a somebody. And the thing about folk music, it lends itself to theatre, doesn't it? Because it is the look. It is the, it is the sort of facial hair. It is the waistcoats. It is these weird sort of Heath Robinson instruments. Absolutely. It's half the battle, isn't it? It's, it's three quarters of the battle. <laughs> long nails. Nail varnish. Right. And, and stories, stories over melody. Stories. Some... And there was lots yeah. of guys. There was Hamish Imlach and Matt McGinn. They were storytellers and songwriters. I'd never come across people like this before. We were funny just with ordinary stuff, talking about what was on the news that night, being funny. Jasper Carrot, Mike Harding. It was, it was a whole new world to me. 
And the audience being there for the artist as much as the artist was there for the audience. Absolutely. And the audience are really important in folk clubs. They sing the songs along with the singer. It's all socialist. It's all together. It's lovely. Very similar to a comedian's audience. You know, all there, you know, almost all together, meeting in the middle. Absolutely. And taking part, which, which is a real big part of it. Yeah, and not so many folded arms and come on then entertainers, but but we're, we're here, we'll do what you want, we'll meet That's you halfway. That's right, the join in. Yeah. And it's it's a really important part of the whole folk thing. And in many ways, a soft launch for a comedian because you're halfway there. I didn't know how to be a comedian. I just I knew I wanted to be one. I'd seen lots of comedians <laughs> when I was a teenager. See, I'm not, I would have thought you were. You may not have been a fan so much of the typical comedian, although you like people being funny. Did you like jokes? I, I like jokes, but what I preferred was people just being funny with nothing. Like the guys in the shipyard were funny, and it was miserable circumstances of <laughs> snow and running down your neck and getting electric shocks from the equipment. Oh. But people would rise above it and be funny to one another. So this was, I'm presuming this was sort of mid to late 60s. Is that yes. Right? Okay, and then we've got to talk about 1975 and we've got to talk about that appearance on Parkinson. Yeah. J- just for people who don't know about it, tell tell us about the, the particular story you told on the show, which meant the next day you, you were literally... I was famous the next day. You were a household name within 24 hours. Yes. I went on Mike Parkinson's show and a guy had told me a joke the previous week in Spain, I was at a football match in Spain, and a guy ran up to me in the street on the way to the park, and he told me the joke, and I fell against a wall when he told me, at my back against the wall, I was laughing, and he walked away, and I've never met him since. And it was about a guy who murdered his wife, and he, he was telling his friend, I murdered my wife. And he said, oh, come on, give me a break. He said, I'll show you. And he takes him round to a shed behind his house. And he opens the door and there's it's an empty shed with a mound of earth and a bum sticking out of it. And he said, that's her. And he said, my God, why did you leave her bum sticking out? He said, I need somewhere to park my bike. When he told me it, my, the power of my legs left me. I was sliding down the wall. When I was going into the show, I was in the limo with my manager, Frank Lynch. And he said, whatever you do, don't tell that joke. It'll be the end of you. And, I, and I, during the show... I got the idea, That's this is a time for the joke. And I did it, and it had the most devastating effect on Parkey. He was speechless, and, and the, the audience were in an uproar for ages. And that, the following day, I was going through Heathrow, and a Chinese guy asked me for my autograph. I thought, that's weird. Then I got to Glasgow, and I was coming through the main lobby of the airport, and everybody burst into applause. And that was that was it. I had done it. I was famous. And what did your manager say after you after you'd done it? He just shook his head. How long was he your manager for? He was my manager for a long time. <laughs> after that, okay, yeah. All right. And were you still drinking at the time? In yes. Okay. Was there any Dutch courage involved in the telling of that no, joke? No. I would. I would. I was always sober when I performed. Right. I would finish very bravely. <laughs> bravely. <laughs> into the night. Uh, okay. I see. When did you stop drinking and was there a specific moment why and how did that affect or reflect on your career? My wife had been bugging me to stop. Right. She said, your character changes, you become a different person. She called him bogeyman when, when I would become this other guy. And I, I was getting fed up with it anyway. I was getting fed up being drunk and confused. And, and I decided to stop and I tried various times. I stopped for a year once. 
And then Pamela bought me some champagne on the anniversary of the stopping. And, and I became bogeyman with the first sip. And I thought, oh, this isn't working. And then I got a, one of those corporate gigs in Marbella. And I, I, I did the gig. And I remember the girl gave me some champagne, the girl who was in charge of the gig. And then the next thing I woke up in the morning and I had somebody's hair in my hand. Oh. And my roadie said, you were an animal last night. You were fighting with a guy. And I thought, this won't do. And I decided to stop. And I never had a drink since. And did, did you, have you ever thought about it? Sometimes in a summer's day, I would like a pint of lager. Right. But other than that, I don't miss it for a second. And would you, would you forgive yourself a pint now because you're in the autumn or the winter of your years? I've often thought about it. Yeah? Should I just get a pint <laughs> and rejoice? You have no choice. But I resist. It's it's been too good without it. And then when you have resisted and the temptation is over, you're so glad that you did, and you that's reaffirmed that you made the right decision. I'm absolutely reaffirmed. I'm overjoyed. Good for you. And I like telling people not to drink. Tell them once. You, when you when I see guys who are in the same position as I was, I say, "Are you okay? Is, is it getting you down?" Because when the fun goes, that's the first symptom. Try giving it a break. And it's, it's well worth it. And the, as, as the breaks get longer the, and the drinking gets shorter... Yeah. ..and they're more concentrated and more ridiculous and therefore it can almost wean itself out of your life. That's right. And then eventually you see people drinking on television and it bewilders you. Somebody having a, <laughs> a, a, a large whiskey yeah. and you think, why? how does that taste? Which isn't hypocritical, but it might sound hypocritical, but it, it's not, though, is it? It's weird. It's, it's the same when you give up smoking. Yeah. The act of smoking in someone else is bizarre. Yeah. Sucking this thing. Well, they do say you only live twice and you only realise your second life when you figure out your first life is probably done and dusted. That's it. Yeah. So it's a new you in a way, isn't it? Yes. I understand and I I, I believe it because you said it, but I find it hard to believe that you have often been petrified before going on stage, yet when you're on stage you seem like the most confident performer in the world. The, the fear of performance got worse as the years went by. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. It never got better. It got worse and worse and worse. And I've, I've met loads of guys who were like that. Robin Williams was like that. He didn't show it, but he told me he was the same. It's bizarre. And, and the walk to the stage, it goes away from the side of the stage to the microphone. It goes away and you become this other person. It's hard to describe and sounds a bit pretentious, but you become another guy. Your voice changes. The, the, the level, the timbre of your voice changes. You become this confident person like a salesman. It's, a, it's the most blissful feeling. Is it something you can do almost without thought? Yes. I never prepared for shows. I would try and think of something to say first. I wouldn't think out my act, but I would try and think of what I was going to say the first time they heard my voice. I would try and get that down. Sometimes it wouldn't come. Most of the time it came, and then it just flowed on from there. 
they and me together. So you could go out for a two-hour, sometimes three-hour gig. Yes. Without literally without an act, but with a, li- a sort of shopping list of topics. That's in, right. In your brain. Yeah. And stories around that that you that you fleshed out that you wrote down once or, or no, not? No, I never wrote them down. Nothing ever. Never. Incredible, Billy. I, th- I thought that's what everybody was doing. <laughs> Well, it wasn't, and it isn't, is it? It isn't, and, and <laughs> comedians write to me, and when they meet me, they say, how did you write? I have trouble writing my stuff. How do you do it? And I say, I don't do it. That must be so frustrating for them. It's because I thought that's the way to do it. I thought that's what everybody was doing. So you do, you do pick subjects, and you do tell stories around the subjects, anecdotal and otherwise, but you do have funny thoughts. So there, there is the element of a sort of joke writer in there, because, you know, there's the, the magnified windscreen as opposed to wearing glasses. Yeah. Now, that's a funny thought. That's not a story. That is the beginning of a joke, isn't that's it? That's the way they all come. They all come with a sentence or an idea. Idea. Right, and then you you <laughs> expand on it. So, like replacing the national anthem with the archers theme. Yes, that See, was the... one of my better ideas. <laughs> so that's that's the initial seed. Yes, and then you just riff off that. There you do it, and the, the, your body takes over as well. Right, you sort of dance to the archers, and you you become another guy and mess around, and it's lovely. When your your watch used to go off in your act. Because I've seen this happen. I saw you do this. And your alarm went off on your digital watch when digital watches had sort of just come out. Yeah. And it interrupted you full flow. And it was hilarious. And then you went on to a riff about your watch. And then about 10 years later, when I was a bit more cynical, I thought, I bet he, I bet his watch was set to go off in the middle no. of the air. Come on now. No. Seriously? No, it just happened. Really? Yeah. But after that, did it not occur to you think, oh, we should do that more often? We should get my watch to go off more often? Yeah, when you try it, it doesn't work. <laughs> you don't get the same feed from it when you try and do it. Sometimes lines, funny lines continue to be funny forever and they bounce you into another area. But the physical things don't work, you know, like alarms and stuff like that. So um, this book, Tall Tales and Wee Stories. Who's the best tall tale teller and we storyteller that you've ever known. Before the banjo, during the banjo, beyond the banjo. Chick Murray, a Scottish comedian. He was the funniest man I ever saw. Or Max Wall as well. I loved Max Wall. They were so bizarre. I tried to learn from them that the bizarre is funny, that the odd thought is funny. It doesn't need to be... It doesn't need to have a punchline or be about your mother-in-law. Or, it's just... The bizarreness of it is, is, the, is the answer. To throw people off balance and throw yourself off balance at the same time and then get on with it. and It's just the most delightful thing to do with your life. So when, when, it, when a, a night, a particular night on stage was going particularly well, yeah. would you, could you think, would you think, did you think, have you thought, this is going far too well, uh, we need to take a really big chance now? Okay, we they've had they've had the money's worth. I've had my money's worth. I feel good about myself. They'll fe- feel good about themselves. Let's let's really sort of sh- throw the balls up in the air for the last twenty minutes. Would you do that? How might you do that? No, I just carried on They're achieving that level of goodness in the room. The, the two of us flying was enough for me. I didn't need to take it anywhere else. It's it's a job. I remember in Dunedin in New Zealand. I was on stage for four hours. I, I looked at my watch and I had done three and a half hours. It was half 11. And I said, my God, it's half 11. <laughs> Let's go till tomorrow. <laughs> and then at which point they cheered like... And they that. went, yay! 
And then you went for another half an so hour. So I carried on, and there was a bell on top of the town hall. Right. And at midnight, it went bong, and the audience went, yes, and all stood up. That's brilliant. And did you ever see anybody else, uh, any any other comedians in the middle of a spectacular marathon? No. Okay, so who who is who's most like you that you saw? Would it be Robin Williams? Would you would you cite him amongst others? Or yeah. Above others, perhaps? Yeah. I like Stuart Lee. Yeah, yeah. I, I, and there's a guy, is it Ancaster? James A. Caster. Yeah. Yeah. He, he's brilliant. I've been watching Tonight at the Apollo. Okay, again, no, these are jokeless comedians. Just thoughts, random thoughts. <laughs> so um, on the way here today or yesterday, do you, do you still have the random thoughts? Or, or no, you... they come at odd times. Right. They, they, like last night I was singing in my sleep and my daughter told me she heard me singing in my sleep yep. if I was going on tonight on stage I would be talking about that give us a, go on begin give us the first couple of minutes how would you start I can't you have to be there to do I'm it I'm here come on we're here we're here we're in the studio come on so, so you're singing in your sleep yeah that's that would be the, the start of it yeah I would continue to think about it during the day and then it would go away and then it would come back and then I would forget what it was I'm singing in your sleep. What were you singing? She can't remember. <laughs> she said it was a jolly join-in song. I was urging people to join in. <laughs> and you don't remember it either? I don't remember it. So, I, I wonder, talking... In that's your... the second time I've done it. Right. I was fishing in Utah with my son. Mm. We were sharing this cabin. And he said you were laughing and singing all night. So I don't know what that's about. So you even sleep happy. You sleep funny. Sometimes I fight. In your sleep? I fight, yeah, and I fall out of the bed trying to punch people. <laughs> what, else, what else do you do? You know you might have done in your sleep? I, I, that's about the size of it. Well, it's more than I've ever done in my sleep, as far as I'm aware. It's bizarre. And when you're on, when you're on the riff, how do you decide when gigs end then? How, how did you decide when gigs ended? How did you know you'd come to the end? Could you just feel that as well? or? Yeah, that, it kind of start, it starts to wind down, and the ideas aren't coming right. quite so fast. And the audience, as you say, well, thanks very much. And they go, oh, come on. And you go, no, that's it. And blah, blah, blah. I've never come back in my life. I, I, when I go off, I'm off. There's never been a Connolly encore. No. Apart from in your sleep. No. I, Mate, that's what the sleep thing's about. You do it. It. This is the encore. It's the encores you never that's got to do. That's a good idea. <laughs> All right, so as we sit here today, how are you? How is life? It's good. Tell me about it. I've stopped performing because of my... Parkinson's disease, and it's I've stopped t touring. I might perform at some other point, but I, I have no plans to. And I'm quite happy taking my medicine and getting along with it. I've started to drool, which is a new one on me. This disease, it gives you a new thing every now and again that you have to deal with, and drooling is my latest. I walk unsteadily, and I my hearing is going, and it's it's bizarre. The bits of me are falling off, but it's interesting. Does it, it? It doesn't prevent you from performing. That's a choice you've made. You could still perform, and like you say, you might. Still I could perform. perform, but would it? So would it affect your health? Would it affect your well-being? Yeah. In in what way? I I would be. It would affect my performance. I don't think the way I used to. I I don't think at the same speed as I used to, and because I don't need to. I, I don't really know if the performance bit has gone because I have to get into the performance mode to see that. I'd have to walk onto the stage and I've never done that. And and it gets steadily more symptoms come and it's 
It's incurable. It's going to, It's not going to end. As a matter of fact, I had a Russian doctor in New York who said, you realise this is an incurable disease? And I said, you've got to get a grip of yourself. Stop calling it an incurable disease. Say, we have yet to find a cure. Give the guy a light in the tunnel. Incurable is such an awful thing to say to somebody. Yeah, well, life is incurable, depending on how you look at it. Absolutely. It? And so, do you fear the future? Are you frightened? No. I find it interesting. And people are good to me. My wife is good to me. She makes me breakfast every day and does my pillows at night. It's Life is good. What would you like to achieve in the next five, ten years? Oh, that's a weird one. Shall I unask it? Yeah. OK, let's unask that question. The last uh, couple of pages in your book, it's a reflection, again, from before the banjo, during the banjo. I like, I like beyond the banjo. I like beyond <laughs> the banjo. That's nice. I like beyond the banjo. Are you saying goodbye in the last couple of pages of the book? Are you saying thank you, a bit of both, or what? The performer is saying goodbye. Right. I'm not saying goodbye. I'm here for the duration. But you have alluded to the fact. You did say, you know, I haven't performed since the diagnosis but you sort of said that you haven't said you would never perform that's right what where when might that decision happen what might the circumstances the, be? The, the circumstances will make themselves known someone will ask me to do something and i'll say yes i almost did recently i was asked to do a gig for parkinson's disease at the albert hall and i i almost said yes as a matter of fact i said yes then i changed my mind so it'll come like that. I can understand why you said yes. Why did you change your mind? I thought it over, and the thinking about it was different from the way I thought about gigs before. Right. And I didn't like it, so I pulled out. How do you feel about that decision now? I feel good about it. It is said, isn't it, by many people, about many people in the public eye, they need to be loved. Yeah. Tell me about you and that particular thought. I don't have any need to be loved. I... I have a need to be appreciated, that's all. And I think everybody in the world has that. I don't have that. I, I find it irritating in other people, the need to be loved. It's, it's irritating, it puts pressure on people. What are you doing for Christmas? My family will come and see me. I live in Key West in Florida. They all fly in and we cook and have a laugh. Will, there be the, ba will the banjo make an appearance? Oh, yes. <laughs> to everybody's annoyance. Has, has uh, Banjo Wonder, has Banjo Glory been passed down to any younger generations? Yeah, my daughter Amy plays banjo. Okay. Uh, do you ever play together? Yes. Do you battle? Yes, good. It's very nice. If I was going to pick up the banjo, and by the way, I'd love to. I just love, I just love the look of a banjo, the feel of a banjo, the gravitas of a banjo. That's, that's the state I'm in. <laughs> now? Yes. Still... God help us all. Uh, what would I play first? What could I knock out in a couple of hours of picking up a banjo? There's a great banjo tune called Cripple Creek, and you could learn it quite quickly. All right, let's have a listen to that and you now. get a result. I like a result. Billy, thanks so much. Thank you very much. It's a joy being here. It's a joy to have you here. The 
the best of the Chris Evans Breakfast Show with Sky on Virgin Radio. Thank you for downloading this special extra edition of the Best of the Breakfast Show with Sky. And if you haven't already, you can subscribe for free to get our best bits every week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 